The Incomparable Podcast, number 87, April 2012. Welcome back to the Incomparable Podcast, and this week we have a theme. We're going to be talking about dragons, because, you know, dragons are a common feature of fantasy literature, and you find them in science fiction, too. They seem to be this, uh, it's not the MacGuffin, but it's this common thread that no matter what else you find in a fantasy world, they're going to be dragons or you're going to be disappointed. And the dragons are often wise or evil or all-powerful, but they seem to be a key element that... that uh, travels through so many different fantasy novels, and it's um, a long history as well. So we thought uh, Lisa Schmeiser, my co-host on this episode. Hello, Lisa. Hi. Lisa and I were talking after Anne McCaffrey died, uh, who is the mm-hmm. author of the Dragon Riders of Pern series of novels, um, how uh, affecting that was for her. And I didn't read that series. I read a little bit of it uh, long ago, but it got us uh, talking about the fact that dragons are this common theme. We like to talk about big issues on The Incomparable, so we thought we would we would talk Dragons, there be dragons this episode. So we brought in some other dragon slayers as well. Dory Smith, welcome Dory to The Incomparable. Hello, Glenn. Hello, and Sarah Barber. Hello, Barber. Thanks for, thanks for having me. You're welcome. Thanks for coming on. So uh, we're going to talk about big themes and specifics too, because there's so much to talk about with dragons. And Lisa, you were before the podcast, Lisa, you were saying mm-hmm. about dragons. What I was saying is I haven't read anything. I haven't sought out or consciously looked for any dragon themed fantasy since about ninth grade but when i learned that Anne mccaffrey had died in i believe it was november last year i was still very affected by it because her dragon riders of pern series was something that provided me with hours of entertainment and um daydreaming from about fourth grade to eighth grade or so and so when an author who shapes that much of your free time during your adolescence dies it, it obviously has an effect on you and actually prompted by her death, I went back and reread many of the books in the series. Mm. Well, I read, and the, the interesting thing, I read them through adult eyes and I read them coming from the perspective of a reader in the 21st century. And it was interesting to note what's, what held up and, and what absolutely does not. <laughs> um, yeah. I feel we should give McCaffrey her props because she really did help break open the door for, um, women in science fiction in a lot of ways. I mean, she, I think she was one of the first women to win. Was it a nebula? Um, I'm, I have to admit, I'm not, I'm not up on my awards, but I do remember she, uh, the, the fact that she set her first uh, series of dragon rider books with a female protagonist and uh, that it's a woman who was doing this was, was kind of a big deal at the time. And her non dragon work is, is pretty, was pretty groundbreaking too. Um, there's a series that starts with a book called the ship who sang. Oh Yes. Yeah, where where they take the brain of they take the brain of the terminally ill lady and they stick it in a ship and That's well great. It, well it's it's well it, it it's a classic riff on a trope that um, you saw a lot in that period because I can also remember I think a Ray Bradbury or Harlan Ellison story about an autistic person who was sent to explore another planet and the argument was well since their brain processes things differently they're able to they're able to parse the data from different planets more effectively than humans or robots can so you know clearly the idea that differently able people could bring experiences and perspectives to the table that humankind could use, and therefore they were valuable. Like, that was something that reverberated through science fiction in the 60s and 70s. McCaffrey picked it up, embroidered it, turned it to an epic space romance. Um, But looping back to the dragons, um, (laughs) 
it is painfully evident she was never a biologist. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, well. Well, and, and, and the unfortunate thing is I, I did train as a biologist. So. Ooh, that's oh. the Well, the thing is that she mentions, oh, all, and on McCaffrey's planet, all of her dragons teleport. And um, someone wants to ask her, well, what do the dragons go to the bathroom? And she goes, well, they obviously go to the bathroom and the teleportational void. So nobody ever has to <laughs> shovel fumets. <laughs> oh, God. And bearing in mind when I was in sixth grade and scooping out cats' litter boxes, I thought this was a great thing. Oh, my <laughs> God. It's, it's, uh, it's a telepathic best friend you never have to clean up after. And it will love me and defend me and fly me all over the planet. Mm-hmm. Um, but, awesome. you, know, you always you have one as your buddy. Oh, you do. You're you do. Like, yeah, you dream you'll yeah. be special and picked. But then you reread this as somebody who's an adult and who has, you know, taken ecology courses. And all I could think was, that's an awful lot of biomass that's getting deposited into a void. <laughs> and most planets are closed systems. So basically, they're depleting the planet over time with dragon poop. How is that sustainable? Right, there's, there's not enough phosphorus <laughs> on that planet anymore. It's terrible. A boron is the thing that she decided to boron. use, but it also makes no sense. Um, <laughs> I looked it up, but, and she was um, she was the first woman to win any nebula of any kind, and the first ah. woman to win the Hugo. Oh, oh there we go! Wow, yeah, yay her! So yeah. yeah, so she was groundbreaking, and you know, when again as an adolescent in the early '80s, when a lot of the very visible space and fantasy things you're exposed to were primarily male, like The Hobbit or The Lord of the Rings, or on TV, there was Star Blazers or Star Trek to, to have this world where, you know, women were effectively running the show and could impress these huge dragons and have adventures and, and, and be co-equal to men. That was tremendously exciting. And it wasn't until much, much later that I really, really that I realized that really the dragons are just kind of giant wish fulfillment machines. They, they, <laughs> <laughs> giant metaphors. <laughs> yeah. There's not a whole lot of cultural resonance, but you know, as a book series, it's, it's something you know. I, well, some kids go through horse phases. I went through a dragon phase. I noticed we have, you know, we've got a few different authors in our list. We're we're compiling mm-hmm. series, and um, a lot of them are female authors. And I've wondered if that's, yeah. I mean, and and writing in that period of time, um, I should say the most notable Ursula K. Le Guin. Um, dragons are a key theme in the Earthsea uh, novels, which I I remember reading as a kid and just loving. And then the she did this amazing thing where she completely retconned her history (laughs) with the other wind, which is a beautiful book and strange and different. And it sort of recasts all of your thinking about her work from 20 years before. Uh, And then there's the Temeraire series by Naomi, whose last name I'm blanking at the moment. Uh, uh, Novik. Novik. Is that it? Yeah. So she, in the Temeraire series is modern and she's still writing uh, entries in it. But, um, you know, I don't want to get into this, like, you know, are dragons, a fe- uh, you know, girl thing. And uh, I don't know what are mm-hmm. boy thing bombs or something, but. Um, <laughs> everything else in science fiction. Rings and swords. Yeah. Everything else. Yeah, everything else. Science fantasy is a guy thing, but. Rockets. But it's, uh, um, you know, it's, it's a. Direwolves. It's a, uh, right. But you know, there's that, there's direwolves. Exactly. There's that. Um, I, I think there's a funny thing about dragons though, is that they're, they're a giant, like overpowering force. You know, I was wondering if there's a relationship between the way little kids love dinosaurs and the way fantasy novelists love dragons. I think it's not just that fantasy novelists love them, but readers love them mm. and they write what pays. Yeah, but, this is true. If people like vampires, then you find a bunch of vampire books. As we've Sadly, all seen. unfortunately. Why don't we have drag- <laughs> vampire dragons? Now we need vampire dragons. Yes. Oh <laughs> we've just made a mil- <laughs> we just made a billion dollars. Sparkling vampire dragons. 
Yeah, there's something more magical about about dragons than there are about uh, dinosaurs, though, because dinosaurs actually existed, right? So it's it's yeah, we still have Komodo dragons. You know, it's that we have Komodo dragons at the local zoo here in Seattle. I can't take my children. They by are them. terrifying. Yeah, the thing is, you mm-hmm. walk into the Komodo dragon enclosure, and when my children were small, I go in there, and the kids are clustered around the glass, and the Komodo dragons are looking at them like, "I'm going to eat that one." And that one, they don't hide it. They don't hide it. I'm like, no. not going in there anymore. So but there's that primal thing. It's something, how many things are bigger than human beings that aren't, you know, there's the big cats and there's elephants that aren't, they're threatening in a certain way. But, but, you know, the Komodo dragon is freaking enormous and crazy. And you're like, but, you know, yeah, there's a great bit in Cryptonomicon where one of the characters, I think it's supposed to be in World War II, where the Japanese soldier who's like washed ashore in some island and it's part of the convoluted plot in that book. And he sees, he sees Komodo dragons and one comes out and like eats one of the guys he's with. And they're mm-hmm. thinking they've lost their minds because they've never seen anything like this before. But I, there's that thing, like it's so big, like dinosaurs, like dragons are so huge and powerful and they're often magic. They can teleport or they can, um, in the tremor air series, they have, uh, you know, they obviously can fly, um, in violation of the laws of physics, but they also have, uh, you know, they can speak from birth or even while they're in the egg. So there's that, I wonder if there's a theme there that, that, that dragon the yearning are- for communication. Mm-hmm. Cause that again, with the Pern thing, uh, when Anne McCaffrey decided to write the origin of the dragons, she has a geneticist go in and engineer them. So they're telepathic. And she, and the engineer also builds in a fail safe that the dragons have to, um, find a human to whom they'll be subordinate. Otherwise they'll die. And the reason this is a fail safe is because the last thing you want is an independently thinking alpha predator, uncontrolled rampaging this planet. Um, but the magic element, I-, I wonder if it has something to do with the fact that dragons are so ubiquitous in human cultures and have been since BC times. Um, I remember reading an article in the New York times a couple of years ago that pointed out that dragons have hit virtually every continent, save Antarctica. Um, Every civil, almost every continent has a civilization that has had dragons as part of its mythology, lore, or creation story. And one person was theorizing that this is because a dragon is essentially an amalgamation of a bear, you know, in terms of the body size and proportion, and of um, reptiloids like snakes and Komodo dragons, and of big cats. And those are the kind of predators that were most likely to pick off our apish ancestors. And so, it, this this amalgamation of, of alpha predators that can kill us has been in our subconscious sense we were pre-verbal dragons are a way that we mediate this fear and and try to try to turn to something divine i feel like some of our uh old old myths are are very much you know they indicate this as well because like all the old myths are are dragons are bad and they're you know they're scary and they have to be defeated like saint george of the dragon and you know the the myth of fafnir um in norse mythology but like recent stories about dragons are all dragons are friendly you know they're dangerous but you can make friends with them and get them to fly you around places that's it's <laughs> it's funny that bonding thing too it's you know if you um the the Temeraire series well actually we should we could talk about some specifics the, the Temeraire series i quite like i picked up i think amazon had like a a free the first novel is a free kindle book or it was incredibly cheap and i looked at reviews and i'm like i don't want to read a dragon novel i'm sure it's gonna be awful it's dragons <laughs> at the time of lord nelson and they're used in military <laughs> campaigns it's ridiculous and i started reading it and it's fantastic i'm not a military history buff i'm not like a napoleonic war guy and um and i'm not even a period novel person and it's it's a beautiful book and the the it's it presents an entirely realistic world in which, you know, it's like there's a great Saturday live, <clears throat> Night Live sketch of years ago, which was uh, this What If series. Was, what if Caesar had had a Piper Cub? You know, and it shows Caesar <laughs> dropping stuff. And 
And that was sort of my reaction. Oh my like, God. what if, what if Nelson's army and Napoleon had dragons? And, but it reads like the, you know, this real military battle. She thought out how you would have military engagements among, uh, you know, li- among a, a dragon, some of which can breathe fire and they can fly. And you have the, the outfit. The dragons are like ships. So they have these guys strapped with carabiners all over the dragon and harnessed so that they can be engaging. And, you know, they disengage to do hand to hand combat in the air. And it's, it's really quite lovely. But the, they, you know, they get to this human relationship, um, as Lisa was talking about with the, the bonding in the Dragon Riders of Pern, you know, uh, Novik is clearly playing towards that is the dragon's bond, even in the egg, I think, to someone. And that person is sort of ruined in society. So the flyers in England, they're not fit for other consumption. They have to live out in the middle of nowhere with the dragons. They're basically a, kind of a band. So the story, uh, the novels start with a, a fellow who's on the rise in the Admiralty and um, has no interest in being a dragon rider. And they managed to steal an egg from the French that the Chinese had given the French for some imperial dragon. And uh, the dragon bonds with him. He's the only appropriate person. So he has to leave this whole career. So, and it's, and it's very moving. And they develop this very touching relationship. And the dragon is incredibly smart. And uh, I think I've read three of the novels now. And um, I'm surprised every time I pick it up. I'm like, really? I'm reading this? And, you know, it's, it's, um, it's lovely stuff. Sarah, do you have a favorite? Do you have some dragon favorites? Um, I have to admit, I actually just repicked up my. Uh, so, Fisher C. Reed was one of the first sort of dragon books that I read, and I, I've kept my copies through the years, and they've they've worn very well. Um, I I have to to agree that that the uh, the Dragon Riders of Pern series did not wear nearly <laughs> no. as well. Um, I started rereading the the, the Dragon Riders of, of Pern, um, the the one with Lessa and Jackson and. The characters just didn't really behave quite like I remember them. No, no, they really don't, do they? <laughs> no, it's it's so unfortunate because I loved them so much when I was like twelve, yes. and, then, and then is it like horses? Yeah. Is like the the romance of riding a horse versus the reality oh. of riding a horse? Oh no, the reality of riding a horse is actually very awesome. In oh, my I'm opinion. sorry, I'm thinking of the reality of taking care of a horse. I beg your pardon, not riding a horse. No, I think part of the problem is too is again when you read these books through a 21st century perspective, these characters are, are either very poorly served by the author because Anne McCaffrey really seems to have it in for sort of women where they're simultaneously awesome and insufferable, um, and the men are just these high-handed, bossy douche knobs. I mean, it's just <laughs> <laughs> except for the the very select few. And the way she writes gay men is just the way she writes gay men is just a hate crime. And it's it's <laughs> <laughs> for its time period. Well, and again, we should probably give her credit for incorporating them as healthy, functional, yeah. matter of fact members in, in, in a society, yeah. because that was pretty rare in the 60s and 70s. And, and to be honest, I missed it when I first started reading the books as a fourth and fifth grader. It wasn't until like the penny dropped during puberty that I'm like, hey, wait a minute. And, you know, so credit to McCaffrey for being able to to write it in that way. But then when you go back and again, you reread the books, you're like, wow, this this is just this. This man doesn't dismount a dragon. He minces off a dragon. It's horrifying. <laughs> yeah. so. hey, I'm, I'm not a Game of Thrones watcher, but I understand other dragons in Game of Games of Thrones. There, Games of Thrones. there are yeah, Game of Thrones. Yeah, there's um, there are definitely dragons in them. They're not as they're not really characters per se i feel like they're more plot points the the exiled queen um spoiler alert by the way oh no um i'm way behind spoiler horn right now (laughs) 
Um, so she has these three dragon eggs that she gets as a present when she gets married. Um, and after her husband dies, uh, she puts them in the fire and they, like, they, they've been stoned forever. Um, and she puts them in the fire in her husband's funeral pyre and they, they, um, they emerge. Um, and they, it's the first time that anybody's seen dragons in, in the world for like hundreds of years. And so it was, it was the symbol of her old family. So it was sort of like, she's coming back, her family's coming back into, into power. And, you know, the dragons are sort of like a, a herald of that. So I have to say the dragons are not really, they're talked about a lot, but they're not much as characters in, in the Game of Thrones. Like in Harry Potter too, is, you know, you have all the dragons throughout Harry Potter, but they're not actually that interesting. They're sort of plot devices <laughs> and they don't have, they seem to be kind of dumb beasts. I, I like how they're basically the fantasy equivalent of the Yellowstone wolves. Because, you know, the U.S. Park Service has been involved in, in oh. reintroducing the wolves to Yellowstone <laughs> yeah. and yeah. tracking them and studying them. And basically you have a bunch of wizards who are, who are, who are magical ecologists and their job is to oh identify God, all these right. different species of dragons and keep them on a preserve and monitor their well-being mm-hmm. and make sure that they're not being hunted to extinction or abused. And I thought that was just a wonderful, colorful detail in the books that, you know, they don't learn rigorous science at uh, – Hogwarts, but they certainly do practice a sort of ethology and ecology, and I thought that was really cool. <laughs> that's agreed. That's very fun. Yeah. I never thought about it the way it's true. It's the you know, won't you contribute to the dragon restoration fund? Only three galleons and two sickles will feed a dragon for five minutes, possibly shorter. Um, well, one of my favorite, um, one of my favorite Discworld books is Guards, Guards, and it's the book that introduces. Um, the character who arguably has become the moral linchpin of the Discworld universe. Um, I'm talking about Terry Pratchett's Discworld. But in Guards, Guards, what happens is somebody who wants to take over a city's throne summons a dragon from the dimensions where wizards had exiled them. And um, naturally, the dragon then becomes the king of the city. But the citizen, at, at the same time, there's also the won't you donate to the dragon fund because in the Discworld, Society matrons, instead of breeding horses and dogs, actually breed um, miniature dragons. And mm. they have pedigrees for them mm. and shows. But the joke is, is these dragons are always blowing themselves up because their their body chemistry is so volatile that every time they try to set something on fire, they, they end up exploding. <laughs> oh, dear. The Discworld book is another one that points out, um, you know, the the the... the the idea of, dra- of dragons as part of a magical ecology and the difference between... Um, you know, tiny pet miniature swamp dragons and the real live magical, I can take over your mind and I happen to live in a different dimension because I can't stand humanity, you know, mythical beasts. Yeah, dragons are always, it's like a genie or something. They're always only, well, depending on the yeah. book, but they're often like only slightly under control and they could at any moment, you know, become yeah. world spanning, destroying beasts or at least wipe out some cities. All the stuff that we're talking about, like we all seem to be referencing stuff that was written within a pretty specific period. Um, and I, I was wondering if, if the dragon's moment has passed or if dragons are, are, are not trendy right now. And if that's a reflection of wider pop culture, or if this is, um, a reflection of the fact that we're uh, all out of our, our, our teens. <laughs> well, I think two of the, I mean, there's two popular series though. I mean, the Temeraire series, I don't think is, they're not like wild bestsellers, but I think they've done well in the fan. I mean, she's written, I think she's on her seventh or eighth book now. Mm-hmm. So they've certainly done at least oh. um, reasonably well. And the Aragon series, which I have not read by Christopher Paolini, I think is how you pronounce the mm-hmm. last name. Right. And he's, yep. 
Didn't he start at like a, a 17 or something? And uh, Yeah, he was he was 14, I think. And um, I've read some of the dialogue and it's uh, sort of execrable, but you know, it's that <laughs> sort of, it's that sort of genre. Yeah. But how many books is he into? Four or five? And it's come to the conclusion of the, of the arc. So it may be more, I mean, it's kind of the Costco thing. It's like, do you have a hundred different dragon stories mm-hmm. going on or two really big ones? Um, but yeah, I feel like they've kind of, they've dropped out of consciousness. They seem to become a plot device as opposed to a driving force as much maybe in fantasy I and mean, maybe it's become more yeah. sophisticated i mean magic is the big thing you read everything you do with fantasy now has to develop an entire we were just talking about the magicians uh in a recent incomparables uh you know two book universe there um the harry potter world is all about the sort of intricacies of spells interactions of spells and things like that i wonder if that's if that sort of um wonkiness has replaced the big giant rampaging beasts I think you've just blown my mind, Glenn. I'm trying, I'm trying to think if there's some sort of larger societal parallel where, because we're heading into an information society, our fantasy is beginning to reflect that bias. Similarly, uh, you know, it's like the same way vampires have become protagonists. They were always, you know, the other. Yes. Well, maybe it's, you know, dragons are now becoming buddies, too. It's funny. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, there's, and that's kind of the movie thing. Like there are movies in which dragons, like even um, Shrek, you know, where the dragon is evil. And then suddenly it's like, oh, oh, you're a lady dragon. Oh, I see. And you're in love with a donkey. <laughs> Pretty sweet. Pretty sweet bit there. That was a big surprise. Uh, but, you know, or the, uh, was it how to tame a dragon, how to train mm-hmm. your dragon? Right. Um, yeah. It was, uh, someone had motor dragon heart. I'm not, I can't think of all the movies that have dragons in them. We'll get the Hobbit coming up. Soon too, the two-part Hobbit will have Smog, Smog. Who's an excellent dragon. Smog was the dragon of my childhood. Dun, dun, dun. Oh, everybody's. Yeah. I mean, it's it's. You can't make him nice. There's no way to make him nice and cuddly. No, no. definitely not. Yeah, gonna bring that I back. Know. What's fun is, in, um, it's interesting. You read Tolkien. Like I remember reading the Hob- you know, the Hobbit, and you read Lord of the Rings. Doesn't really have. You've got the the horrible um, creatures that the Black Riders, they're beasts that are some kind of evil stench carrying thing. But um, but the the Silmarillion has some dragons in it, and they do crazy things like hypnotize people for the rest of their lives and so forth. But they're always occupying halls and there's things like that. I think that was always the thing I never understood about fairy tales was why would dragons want to do something as mundane as occupy a castle? You're a dragon. You have unlimited power. <laughs> <laughs> what do they get out of hoarding all this jewels and gold? I mean, they don't go shopping with it. What do they do with it? The question I was going to ask you earlier, Dory, is so do you have a dragon? Is there a dragon uh, affinity you have? Is there some particular novel or series that affected you that you like to uh, talk about? And looking back, actually, I never was, had a dragon phase as such. It was more like things I liked just happened to have dragons in them. And a lot of things I liked just happened to have dragons in them. Uh, maybe it was just that I read Anne McCaffrey at exactly the right point in my life. Uh, yes. back when Dragon Song and Dragon Singer, you know, and mentally mm-hmm. just hit me at just the right point in mm-hmm. high school, middle school. Um, okay, how much do I love this is turning into the Anne McCaffrey podcast I dreamed of having? <laughs> <laughs> I'm the only one who never read her. No, I think seriously. I read one of her novels when I was a kid. Well, it was, but it was that girl yeah. guy thing, right? Anne McCaffrey was something that girls read, and it was an acceptable form of fantasy. And I was reading Sword of Shannara, which was something also that girls I knew read, but it wasn't, mm-hmm. it was like that was acceptable to go around with the sword book, and the girls had the dragon book. I feel like there used to be a split like that, partly in the portrayal of dragons, too. Well, it's like no boy these days is going to go around reading Twilight. Exactly. Yeah, oh, exactly. God. 
I'm sure there are some, but yeah, that's right. No, they read it to Not get the public. girls, I'm sure. Yeah. He's yeah. Seems well, sensitive. <laughs> care, care, sensitive well, caring that, vampires. Isn't there, it's either conventional wisdom or published studies that, that point out that girls are much more willing to read books with male protagonists. Yes. But boys typically do not pick up books with female protagonists. Right. And with the Anne McCaffrey YA novels that lead into the lead into Pern, that's Dragon Song, Dragon Singer, Dragon Drums. For the first two, the mm-hmm. protagonist is a, is a young woman mm-hmm. who's trying to break into a male-oriented profession. So that's not going to provide an entryway for young men. And then with the uh, Adult Fair, which is uh, Dragon Flight, and then the umpty million dragon titles that came after it again in your <laughs> first two... Um, that much of the action centers around women who are riding gold dragons. And, and again, I'm sure guys read those because if you go through Pern fan forums, there are plenty of guys who are, who are weighing in on this stuff. But I do wonder if you're a 14 year old boy, you're like, why do I care about some broad riding a dragon? You know, there's, mm-hmm. there's some other stuff that you're more likely to read. Is she hot? <laughs> <laughs> she, is she saving herself uh, no. from a vampire? Yeah. Oh, it's uh yeah it's um it's, you know so i wanted to raise mingle. the point of the like the dragon unicorn unicorn uh paradox which is um you know unicorns of course to attract a unicorn i was talking about this with somebody recently and i said you know how to attract a unicorn and they said no and i said well if i understand <laughs> my mythology right you need a young female virgin <clears throat> no one else mm-hmm. may qualify well, you need a virgin you need a virgin i thought it was female be, you need a female was it virgin. female virgin i think, I think typically right. assumed i guess that's true well you could be a you could be an ancient <laughs> Male or female virgin too. It is true, uh, but there is that sort of you know the virginal purity, and you have to have the woman. You know, there's that that scene if you remember in um, uh, not the Mortella Arthur, but uh, uh, what's the the Arthur Arthurian retelling Once a Future King? Yes, there's a terrible. Oh, yes, yes. Do you remember that terrible scene? Oh. Everyone goes, oh, you don't have to describe it. I'll describe it for our readers I, yeah. in, in in brief terms. But the uh, the kids from the Orkneys, including um, Arthur's. Uh, sort of a son, bastard son, uh, mm-hmm. they go off hunting a unicorn and they sort of, what they, they capture a young woman, they tie her to a tree so they can attract a unicorn and then they um, kill it. <laughs> they bring its head back to their mother. Mm-hmm. There's Morgan Le Fay, right? Is the mother yes. in that? Uh-huh. Yeah. Morgan to impre- is her mother. Oh, right. And oh, they, yeah, and, yeah. yeah. And they, Ooh. and to impress her and she's of course horrified. I mean, and she's evil herself, but it's horrified. Mm-hmm. And there's that, always that notion of, you know, you kill a unicorn. It's in Harry Potter. Of course, it's everywhere. Oh, yeah. So you're, taking some kind of purity and beauty out of the world. Nobody thinks that way about dragons. Except in the disc world. The whole way that started uh, in Once in Future King was that Morgals was going out with knights from uh, the court and she was portraying the virgin. And, you know, you're supposed to be hinting at, you know, well, of course they're not catching anything. Because, well, she's got four sons, so, <laughs> <no>. <laughs> so, but the kids see this and they think, "Oh, mom must really want a unicorn," right? And they think right. they're doing something for mom, and it's kind of heartbreaking. It is, I was about to say that the 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 relationship between Morgaus and her sons is one of the most heartbreaking things you'll read in a book that's full of them. Um, I mean, T. H. White pulls no punches when he shows how toxic or absent love from a parent can really, really warp a child for life. And the people who do it deliberately to their children are monsters. It's, it's, yep. it's angry and heartbreaking. That's right. It's a dysfunctional family told in Arthurian legend. It's pretty, there's a good recommendation. There's a good recommendation for an uplifting novel. No, it's great, but it's fun. It's for a future the best podcast, dude. I'm an Arthurian. For a future podcast. Oh man, <laughs> yeah. I want in on that one. I can talk yeah. about Arthurian stuff for 
We'll get we'll get you back for Arthurian Arthurian legends coming soon. Excellent. Incomparable. You have to read I mean, it if there isn't enough, yeah, there's a million things. Oh yeah. We could talk about Excalibur the movie, but the uh, but the unicorn thing. So that you know, unicorns are always supposed to be pure, and I always thought that was kind of this funny thing because you have the again, you know, whether it's a female or girl thing, the the um, interest in dragons or the fantasy novels with dragons and sci-fi novels with dragons mm-hmm. and the unicorn. We don't get novels written about unicorns. Unicorns are boring. It's sort of like. Heaven as an afterlife. Sorry, right. I've got the harp and the wings. Now, what am I supposed to be doing here? Ah, living in perfect bliss. Forever. So that same, yeah, same thing. Like, okay, I got a unicorn. And oh, ooh, ooh, I have a, I have a slight. It, it's funny you mentioned that though, because one of the things I did stick in our our pre-show notes, um, in Guy Gavriel Kay's first fantasy epic, the Fionnvar Tapestry, which is made up of three separate novels: um, the Longest Road, the Wandering Fire, and um, the Summer Tree. And I've just named them in reverse order, by the way. Um, <coughs> Anyway, there are two instances of dragons in that series. And the first is a dragon that was uh, bred by the forces of darkness and has been biding its time for thousands of years and is just basically a mindless killing machine. And then there's a second dragon, and it's a dragon that's evidently made of crystal. But the thing is, um, it is apparently the foundational force for a dwarven civilization. This, this, This civilization of dwarves evolved to serve the dragon and to worship her in a weird kind of Episcopalian way where they just have really nice public spaces and they make statues and then just go about their, their dwarvish business. But this dragon is obviously supposed to represent some sort of civilizing force. And um, over the course of the massive three book war, it's evident that the two dragons are supposed to be headed for a showdown. But what happens instead is some young upstart takes his unicorn and uses it to kill a dragon instead. So <laughs> worlds Perfect. and themes colliding. <laughs> Also, I'd say spoiler horn, but the series is like 30 years old, so you deserve to be spoiled if you haven't read it. <laughs> but but it, it was it was interesting because they used the unicorn in a purely martial sense throughout that entire hmm. series where the unicorn descends from whatever divine plane it happens to have lived on. Um, it bonds with this one young boy and all they do is go and kill things. I mean, he rides that unicorn into battle. The unicorn is basically a living sword. He kills things, and then he comes home, wipes off the blood, hangs with the unicorn until the next battle. Oh, my God. Yeah. So, That's horrible. And you well, recommend this book? Oh, oh, I absolutely recommend the, the, the Fiona of Our Tapestry. It's, it's, hmm. I think, I'd, I'd put it in, like, the new, the new canon. But um, hmm. it's, one of two, it's one of two badass unicorns in fantasy literature, and the other one would be Gaudior from um, Madeline Engel's... Uh, Murray O'Keefe books. I think Gaudior shows up in um, a swiftly tilting planet, which is the third of the books about Meg and Charles Wallace. And I'm going off of memory here because I haven't read those books. I'm trying to remember the uh, yeah. There, well, he's he's stern as opposed to evil, right? Isn't that he's the, stern, uh, but he's a badass. I mean, yeah. he, he he does he does not brook any nonsense whatsoever. And um, there is a scene where there's the birth of a unicorn, but basically Madeline Engel. Um, her whole thing with the unicorns is they're otherworldly and they symbolize justice and um, the fearlessness and the pitilessness required to uphold higher ideals sometimes. Right. And again, it's a very militant, almost warrior-like unicorn compared to, oh, it's lovely and it's attracted to young women who mysteriously have never had a boyfriend and, and <laughs> you know. Well, I was going to bring up another one, which is Diana, uh, I don't know pronounce her last name, Peter Freund, who, um, the killer unicorn universe. I started reading one, uh, like a short story about it where the unicorns are all deadly and hunted and they have venom in their fangs and they like to kill people and there are 
telepathic people who are bonded to unicorns and it's um it's sort of hilarious. I thought it was like a joke story because it seems so absurd, but I think she now has if I'm understanding from her website, I believe she has four well, she has two books out, but there's some other stuff coming, it looks like as well. There's two short works and two long works. So uh I, I must read this now. I think yeah, I think killer unicorns are the new like those are the new dragons. <laughs> yeah. We've we've met the dragons; they are now. Do they fly? That's always a question. Unicorns, you know, some unicorns are also winged horses as Does well. Does that make so. them pegasi? Pegacorns. pegacorns. All right, thank you. That's what they are. That's we now have the title of the episode: the pegacorn. Sarah, you've been so quiet. Have we have we just gibber jabbered you out of existence? I have to admit, I've been very quiet because uh, I haven't read any of the things you, you are discussing. Um, I, my one unicorn book in front of me is, is uh, Bruce Coville's Into the Land of the Unicorns, which is a, a young adult novel. You might remember Bruce Coville from um, My Teacher is an Alien fame. No. Um, no? I don't know his, no, I don't know his work. What's so, oh, okay. is, so uh, is fantasy or so, this is, well, uh, Alien definitely, has to be... Definitely, so, so definitely, definitely sort of fan, young adult fantasy sci-fi. Um, so anyway, Into the Land of Unicorns is actually a, kind of a, almost a dark fantasy of, of unicorns, um, where, you know, there are some good unicorns and there are best and bad unicorns, but, um, and it's, it's kind of fascinating because this young girl gets pulled into the land of the unicorns and she has to defeat the bad unicorns with the help of the good unicorns. Um, and as I'm being very dark for, for a novel for a 12-year-old, um, but it... Last unicorns are, are are not quite the subject of this podcast. So, well, it's funny. I think we have the unicorn dragon uh, uh, dialectic here, right? The the uh, the battle between or the it's the uh, the battle between the forces. But I mean, that's I think that's what it comes down to for me. Is is I've been trying to figure out since we started talking about the podcast a while ago. Is um, is you know is it is a convenient plot device? You know, we talk about it being uh, maybe an archetypal thing that's deeply rooted in our brains for some reason. Um, you know, unicorns also seem to be all over the place. I mean, they're in across, they're sort of a common trope too. And um, if dragons disappear, do we get more unicorns? Do they start populating the universe more? I don't know. Maybe it goes in with the whole big information society type of thing where there's no longer huge frontiers to tame with big mythic, with, with big dangerous animals that could kill you. And we've now gotten to the point where we're trying to coexist with the species that are still left in a, in a highly regulated world. I mean, it's, you think about it, we, we, we live in a world where a TV show was just shut down because three racehorses were, died during the filming of the episode. Oh, right. Oh, goodness. Yeah. What, what was so, that? Uh, it was Luck, um, mm. which uh, intensely pedigreed show on HBO, um, and Dustin Hoffman was in it, and it had a great cast, and David Milch was behind it, and he's generally um, top of the field. But because it was a show about horses at a racetrack, um, over the course of filming the 13 episodes that will make up the series, three different horses had to be put down. Oh, dear. And it's raised a lot of, well, it's it's raised questions that people have been asking for years about um, the moral and ethical obligations of using animals for entertainment. And, you know, as a, as a society, first world Westerners are kind of moving into a new phase of our relationship with animals. We no longer regard them as beasts of burden and as... Um, and as food and as a commodity to be bred and used as we please. We're, we're now beginning to get to the point where we're actively concerned about the emotional lives of animals and their living conditions and what our moral responsibility to, to other, to other um, you know, living systems on this planet are. And so maybe fantasy is beginning to re- reflect that because we're going from less of a how can I use and exert my dominion over this ungovernable force into 
how do I maintain my status as a moral or ethical being while working with a completely different species? Yeah, you see that reflected in a lot of different ways, I think, too. I mean, that's interesting. You bring that up in relationship to, uh, I mean, there's there's the older eras of both fantasy and science fiction in which were not just male dominated, but it was these great, you know, empires and things crashing to the ground and huge forces and um, everything had to be subject mm-hmm. to the will of the whatever, the wizard or the king and, and so forth and forces are arrayed. And then as things become more and more morally ambiguous, like, well, you know, we own this dragon. It's like, do you really own the dragon? Can you ever own a dragon? Maybe the dragon is leasing itself to you and it's really got its own power. Maybe the dragon owns you. That's right. I, I would be actually very curious to see when all of these books are written and then like what exactly the relationship of the dragon is with the the um, the human protagonist, if any. We'll leave that um, to we'll have the reader. There's a reader, a reader mm-hmm. exercise. Would you please chart yeah. the eras? But yeah, it's, uh, I mean, it's also, I think, um, uh, I'm trying to think back historically, uh, you know, even like reading um, from the 19th century. I mean, I know that fantasy is not a modern genre. Science fiction is... Of course, you know at least you have to go back to the 1880s or something. But um, uh, the, the 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 idea of having fantastical animals in books isn't new, but they're used very allegorically. And I can't think of examples before the 20th century in which you would have, you know, these giant beasts. Maybe it was partly because we didn't believe that anything that big existed, you know, in the Western uh, in Western literature at least that we didn't have the experience with, you know, elephants since we went to Africa or. People bring reports back that sounded ridiculous uh, or finding skeletons of dinosaurs, things like that, or the bones of dinosaurs, um, that it was just beyond the scope of what we could encompass. So it's sort of a modern phenomenon to even think about stuff that's that big. Now, bear in mind, I know my, my, uh, not my I have no survey knowledge of literature in the 15th to 18th centuries. Um, big gap in the education. But from what I can recall of hist of, of, from my history lessons in school, one of the predominant themes of correspondence when people colonized the New Worlds was they'd go fishing and then see a sturgeon that was easily you know twelve feet long, or they'd go into the woods and run across bears or deer that were larger than anything they'd ever encountered in Europe. So, so from about the fifteen sixteen hundreds, we've had people who have spun these really vivid correspondences of, of I've come to this brave new world where there are monsters of tremendous size. Um, you know, there, there, there is that experience. I don't know though how that would be reflected in um, whatever the fictional traditions of the time would be, or if that would even be a factor or if this would, or if it would just be something that would be transmitted through, through folk tales or, or popular accounts. Something to keep in mind there is the whole, you know, the one that got away trope. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh, you should have seen the fish. It was this big. This big. People tend to remember this as being, oh, it was bigger than a house, you know, bigger than a castle, bigger than. There's oh. also, uh, the, the, this goes back as far as I think at least the 12th century with Marco Polo. Um, mm-hmm. And he was, he was describing unicorns, but he was actually describing like rhinoceri. Oh, right, that's right. That's like the uh, the manatees being mistaken for um, for mermaids. Uh, yes, exactly. Yeah, yeah, for mermaids. Those were some lonely Boy, sailors. They were lonely. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah, and then and I think it even goes back farther than that. There were um, some. I remember there being. I can't remember his name, but there's this Greek uh, traveler who traveled to the Middle East and then found some fantastic beasts. I would have to go look it up again. But Jason oh. and the Argonaut. Uh, no. That's a myth on its own. Oh, oh, I was talking about his historical. 
I know oh, who you mean. I can't mind. remember the name. I too. I can't remember. <laughs> it wasn't Thucydides, but it was. Um, yeah, uh, right. Because he brought back, yeah. and his reports were a mix of like complete fiction and and historical accuracy, right? So that yeah. people mm-hmm. took them hundreds of years to figure out what he'd actually what was actually real elsewhere in the world. Yeah, exactly. I, so I think we we definitely like have these stories where um, people were were had this. Uh, story where they they would just say like oh my god i went to this place and i saw these big things like you you will not believe the things i saw and um what's really interesting about these books the books that we've listed here the more more modern ones is that people are they're not really like oh they're not you won't believe what i saw anymore they're all like oh well we've now created this world you know it's we're going to try and make it as believable as possible um it's funny so we really so we've come to the so i think our our panel conclusion is that uh is that the more of the world that we know the less there is to explore the more these things that are sort of outsized like dragons or improbable like unicorns they've been pushed out right it is an ecological problem there's no (laughs) there's no niche left for them in our fantasy mind so i'll let me posit this then so is the alien series of movies are those the dragons of outer space you know they're they're scaly they're freaky they breathe fire in the form of acid they kill people or, or is that is that where we had to push them we had to exile them into outer space definitely definitely um there's some Actually, good I think dragons in space uh, i don't i don't know that i agree i think it's more just you know generic bad guy how do you make oh. something this scary well all the saurian species there's always it's always lizard people right we're always freaked out about lizard people in outer space and the, um, and insect people, definitely too. Mm-hmm. Oh yeah, that's you know that's a subject for other podcasts. I always want to talk about um, uh, the great writer James T. Uh, Tiptree Jr. Uh, Alice Sheldon. Ah. Um, we will do a podcast. Yeah. I've been trying to summon enough people ah. to read her um, because she's so. If you read James Tiptree too much, your soul dies a little bit, even as it flies in the air. It's a <laughs> people must read her biography. It's a marvel. She's a, a crazy good, but she has she has these novels, uh, these insect characters. <clears throat> who are always being preyed upon because they're when tortured, their tears are produce an alcohol finer than any substance in the universe. Perfect tip tree. But <clears throat> we are sort of we're freaked out always about yeah, insects and but I think about Saurian species, you know, Star Trek with the um <laughs> Kirk having to make his makeshift weapon to kill the or to d- disable the lizard creature and uh it, it mm-hmm. always, uh, you know the original series of V, um the, there's that meme that people have. There's this whole thing Crazy people believe that lizards have invaded our planet and run it. And it's like this really <laughs> widespread meme. It's sort of terrifying how many people have uh, this lizard person thing going on. So I wonder if that's part of it, too. You know, lizards, dragons, you know. Uh, there's, a, there's, there's a series um, about uh, what would have happened if the dinosaurs hadn't died off and had instead evolved a, a hominid analog. And it is killing me not to remember the series because basically the whole thing comes down to... Uh, they enslave humans, and it's, it's. Oh yeah, it's not. It's not no, Dino- no, no, not Dinotopia. No. That's okay. the that's the kids' version. No. Of that, I think I saw that oh, movie. It's so fantastic, though. Yeah. No, I don't believe Dinotopia is like holy cats. Dinosaurs, dinosaurs still exist. This was holy cats. We have humans, human like, bi- bipedal animals that are oh. cold blooded and smarter than we are. Oh. <laughs> oh, I see. Totally different series. I hope you all saw the recent paper that was talking about the. Um, it wasn't about Chimera. Uh, it was about. Um, uh, issue of handedness in chemical structures found in meteorites and the relationship to life on the planet. And it finished with the yes. line, which I hope you all saw, it finished with a line that was, yeah. if this happened the same in other planets, then it's possible there are super intelligent dinosaurs out there and we should beware of them. And I'm not kidding. This is a <laughs> peer-reviewed paper, and that was the last line. 
after oh, all this oh. discussion of uh of uh, isn't that kind of the consensus of the scientific community that is if there's life out there and it's going to get to us we should be very afraid i believe uh, I don't think so. I, I think there, there's we have a there's Drake's equation um, that's like a very like pie in the sky sort of equation where you know there's probably life out there, but the length of their civilization and how long they exist and you know the level of their technology is such that we're probably never going to see them. Yeah, that's right. You have to be in the sweet spot where you actually you're still alive and they're still alive when they get right. Yeah, exactly. Like, you know, you, they they have to prevent themselves from blowing themselves up, you know, via nuclear, you know, devastation or something, whatever their analog is. Um, or they're, yeah. So it's, I think for the most part, we've, we've concluded that probably there's life out there because there's a lot of space, but probably not going to see it anytime soon. Yeah, but they might be dragons. They're, they're, <laughs> there might they be, dragons. be dragons. It's a great band. It's a new cover band of... No, sorry. <laughs> yes. Uh, but do they have opposable thumbs? That's always a problem. How do they hold the sword? Yeah. Well, With their minds. That's right. <laughs> Telepathic dinosaurs. I mean, all, th- all dinosaurs are telepathic, right? Like, pretty much every single one of these series, they, they communicate telepathically with the, the, the humans. The only one that's, you know, the, the Temeraire one, they actually oh, oh, oh. talk, but they do have some kind of deep bonding. Yeah. There's actually one series I read as a child where the dragons didn't. It was um, Jane Yolen's Pit Dragon series. Yes, yes. That was a fantastic series. It is. And I think one of the things I liked about it was how complex and realistic the, the whole planetary society seemed compared to a lot of other dragon-centric societies. But uh, yes. what's interesting about the way Yolen treats the dragons is the relationship between the people and the dragons is a lot more like the relationship between peoples and any sort of specific class of animal, you know, here, here on earth. It's not, Oh, I have a telepathic best friend who could set you on fire. <laughs> it's, it's, it's like they're, it's like they're fighting dogs in, in the pit dragon yeah. series. Oh mm-hmm. yeah. Oh. I, a friend just convinced me to watch the never ending story and, uh, which I never oh. saw when I was a kid. And me neither. Um, <laughs> it's, I would say it's worth watching because it is, it is, it is the most peculiar movie. I think I, of that era. <laughs> like in an era of peculiar movies, there's all these inexplicable things. And it's just very weird. It feels like it was edited from two different movies in another language with a framing mechanism put on in English. And it's possible that's what the case was. But there is a dragon that looks like a giant dog. There's a lot of Muppets in the film. and, and it's uh, kind of a giant ferret. Yeah, that's yeah, more like <laughs> a very strange neck. And is, uh, yeah. so the, there's the, uh, the end of the movie. Spoiler horn. The end of the movie is mm-hmm. the kid from the real world is flying the dragon back into the real world where it's chasing down the bullies who bothered him at the beginning of the movie. You know, it's very, uh, that's what you need a dragon yeah. for. That's what you need a dragon for, you know? Uh-huh, exactly. You get a dragon. I think- that's why it's popular in the YA world. Right. Puff, Puff the magic dragon. Uh, <laughs> Who hasn't dreamed of unleashing a dragon on your enemies in sixth grade? Oh my Dif- different, different type of dragon, I think. <laughs> <laughs> Not Puff. He'd make friends with them. Yeah. He's, he's a friendly guy. Kids don't do drugs. Or you drugs. can plant it in their locker and get them kicked out of school. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Um, well, at the risk of not, I'm sorry, dragging this on, I have to say, uh, oh, uh, um, it's been delightful to talk dragons with you all. And uh, we'll have to come back and talk about uh, unicorns, more James Tiptree, and uh, the Once and Future King in the future. But I uh, thank you all for being here tonight. My co-host, Lisa Schmeiser, who, with whom we cooked this idea up together. Thank you. Oh, Glenn did all the heavy lifting. Oh, really? <laughs> well. And uh, Dory Smith, thank you for being on your first time on our podcast. Thank you very much. I'm 
Hope to come on again. Thank you very much. Absolutely, Sarah Barber. Thank you for being here. Also another first-timer. Thank you for coming on and Talking Dragons with us. Thank you for having me so much. And we will be back again soon. I have no idea what's going to happen in the next episode of The Incomparable. Maybe another mm-hmm. game show. Something insane that you will, you will curse us for airing. But we hope to have you back soon. Thanks for listening. Sarah, you've been so quiet. Have we have we just jibber jabbered you out of existence? Are you just shocked by us? Uh, hello, Sarah. <laughs> oh, we lost her. That's what I remember. Oh my goodness. Oh my That's god. Because I was feeling so bad because I'm being Anne McCaffrey. Nim, 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 nim. <laughs>